Welcome everybody to the uh, welcome to September to the September first edition of Legal Tech Week, the show where we talk about the week's stories in legal tech and innovation. And for anybody here thinking they're joining our tenth anniversary show, because we did, I mean, uh, yeah, our one hundredth show, not our tenth anniversary show, uh, that would be uh, that would be a long time. Our one hundredth show, uh, which we talked about last week that might be this week. Well, it's not this week. So come back September 15th. We are going to have a gala Friday afternoon uh, 100th episode show with uh, everybody who has ever been a panelist on this show joining in. I don't know how we'll all have time to say anything, but we'll make it work. And and uh, hopefully we'll all be wearing party hats and, and make it worth worth your time. Uh, but uh, as for this week, uh, we are here to talk about the stories from this week. We've got a couple of a uh, couple of e-discovery stories, uh, and so I uh, invited uh, back our resident uh, e-discovery expert here, uh, Doug Austin, to join us, and a uh, couple of other uh, stories from from the world of legal tech. So uh, let's just uh, start as we always do with our introductions. And Doug, uh, you want to kick it off? Uh, sure. Uh, I'm Doug Austin, editor of the Discovery Today, uh, which uh, is a blog about three and a half years old. I've been blogging, daily blogging for 13 years, which, like I said last time, would be impressive in most groups, but not so much in this one. But uh, uh, glad to be here, as always. We're always happy to have you here. And uh, Nikki Black. Uh, my name is Nikki Black. I am the head of SME and external education at Affinipay, which is the parent company for my case and LaPay. I write legal tech columns for ABA Journal Above the Law, Daily Record, and other outlets. And I also oversee and write our um, the My Case and LaPay benchmark reports and annual legal industry report. I'm happy to be here. All right. And Gina Grady. Hi, I'm Gina Grady. I uh, write the Dewey B Strategic blog. Uh, which covers mostly research, knowledge management, but other things that come up and interest me. Uh, and I also write a monthly column for Legal Tech Hub. And Victor Lee. Hi, everyone. <clears throat> Sorry. Uh, my name is Victor Lee. I am Assistant Managing Editor of the ABA Journal, covering business technology. Oh, sorry. I, I don't know what's wrong with me today. Business of <laughs> technology and law. And last but not least, Joe Patrice. Joe Patrice, uh, senior editor from Above the Law and the Thinking Like a Lawyer podcast, and excited to take a break from the my favorite uh, sports weekend of the year to uh, to join and talk about some legal tech. All right. Well, um, I, I so I guess the biggest the biggest sort of news story of the week from a in, from the legal tech world uh, had to have been the. Uh, news that uh, the e-discovery company reveal had done a double acquisition of two other e-discovery companies of uh, logical and ipro uh, in a deal maybe valued at like a billion dollars although the reporting around around all, all of that has been really inconsistent uh, I, I i'm i'm i don't know i'd love to hear some of your perspectives on it but uh, clearly a, a very you, big deal could you yeah. say that they could you say that they have not yet revealed all the details of the? Oh, yeah. uh, <laughs> good. I don't know if you want to. <laughs> yeah, um, I can't even think of a good comeback to that. But yeah, that's a that we can say that. Um, 
but uh, it, very interesting deal. I mean, it, it, on, on the on the valuation of it, it's it's just been interesting because the, the the press statement that they put out uh, said that the 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 value of the deal was a billion dollars, words to that effect. But then I have since seen other reports that say the total uh, uh, investment in reveal by uh, K one is a K one that did the uh, yeah. the deal uh, is 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 a billion dollars total for everything. And they had already put two hundred million in a few a couple of years ago, uh, and and uh, and then I've seen that another one saying that the total of all the acquisitions they've been done they've done is at a billion dollars. So I, I'm really not sure what this deal is worth, but it's 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 a big deal. Uh, uh, if anybody has insights on that, but. Uh, but Doug, I just wonder. You know, obviously, you're you're probably more in tune with the the e-discovery world than any of us on this panel. I wonder what what you think of this. Um, well, you know, this is I think the I don't know something like the fifth or sixth uh, uh, companies that uh, Reveal has acquired in the last couple of years. They acquired Brainspace. Uh, they acquired a partner of mine earlier this year, um, uh, uh, Legal. Um, now and acquiring two companies at once, pretty wild. Um, I understand why they did it. Both companies have great tech. Um, uh, Bob, as you pointed out on your blog, iPro is one of the few companies that really truly have end-to-end e-discovery because they have an InfoGo solution. They, of course, they have Trial Director. Uh, so obviously that helps them check that box um, or all those boxes. And um, Logical has been a great uh, small and medium-sized firm, do-it-yourself uh, kind of platform. Uh, so it's great tech they acquired. Um, obviously, one of the things that always comes into play is how do you bring all that tech together and how does it work and when do you offer this and does it get confusing and so forth. And uh, they did a good job when they integrated Brainspace. So uh, we'll see how they do with these two companies. But but it's, it's certainly kind of a, uh, an indication of I think where we're going to continue to see many more acquisitions that uh, come down the pike here in the next um, you know couple of years or so. D- deals are back, baby. I guess. I mean, it's it, you know, after what seemed like a, a dry period, we're seeing some pretty big deals happening lately. Yeah, last year. Um, uh, so Rob Robinson, of course, he tracks all the deals with any uh, discovery, which is a great resource. And um, I think the the year before last, uh, 2021, was a record year in terms of the deals he tracked. Last year was about a fourth of those deals. So it was a real drop off. Um, and this year, I think it's much more back towards 2021 numbers. Um, and I'm not surprised. I think I think the market conditions are right for companies to be acquired, and I think um, I think investors are starting to re- like pull the trigger more. They've been working on these deals for a while, and sometimes you get that kind of you know kind of ebb and flow because they work on deals for a while, then a bunch of them hit all at once. So we'll see. Did, did you get? I a think chance? that's. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Oh, I was going to say I, I think that's a logical explanation of what's <laughs> happening. I'm going to try to work in all the companies here well, before this segment. Where's over. your gong? You are an iPro, Joe. <laughs> iPro. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, and I, uh, you know, I, I, I truly, I think it'll be interesting to see. You know, one of the things that I keep getting the question on is, does that mean the industry is truly consolidating now? 
but um, even though there's probably a handful of really large players, um, there's still plenty of other companies out there and we're getting new entries into the market, you know, like companies like Ultimatum and Beagle, um, you know, it's NAI type uh, e-discovery capabilities and so forth. So every time it seems we see a couple of companies get uh, acquired, we get a two, couple of new entries into the market. A couple of years ago, somebody asked me to do a, um, kind of an analysis of the market. And I counted no less than 50 review platforms out there. And, you know, there's, I, as far as I know, pretty much all of them are still in, in play today. So, um, so yeah, it's, it's not a consolidated market by any means. There was a kind of a weird, um, it was it's kind of weird about how this whole thing was rolled out. I, I, I think, I'm not sure about all of you, but I, I got the press release at like, I don't know, it was like very late on the day, the, the, on, the, on the day before they were, you know, lifting the embargo on the news. So, and, and they weren't offering anybody up to speak to. Uh, uh, I've, I've, I've gotten to know Andy Wilson and Logical pretty well over the years, and I, I tried emailing him without, without any success. Um, and so, I mean, the, you know, we all, a bunch of us, at least we all reported the news the next morning and then immediately comes the news of, of layoffs at, at iPro. And it's kind of, initially I started getting a couple of messages from people saying, you know, you ought to look into layoffs or letting everybody go. And, you know, initially I heard things like half of everybody at iPro is being let go. And, uh, and then there's a, uh, you know, it started popping up on, on LinkedIn and on, uh, there's an e-discovery group on Reddit where there were some people talking about all this. Uh, but wait, it, it, the wait so they're getting rid of they're getting rid of half of iPro. So you're saying they only wanted the IP <laughs> or the RO? That's actually uh, a substantive claim. That what they? Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, they weren't, as it turns out. I mean, it, it was then. There was this weird thing where they're. People reporting 158 number based on somebody having found the Warren Act filing, which uh, said 158 people were being let go. Uh, and then I, I reached back out to uh, the uh, reveal PR person, basically, who said, no, it's only, you know, 70, 79, not only, but 79, uh, and that there was a clerical error. And uh, it was just all this sort of confusion about what was going on. Then apparently there were the other thing that was being said was there were actually layoffs at Logical before the deal closed uh, or was announced. So it might have been even more than that. But it's very strange. Uh, I mean, it, it, that that part of it was handled kind of oddly, I thought. Yeah, um, well, there's not there's never really any good way to handle layoffs. I mean, when you think about it. Yeah, uh, yeah. Um, Mike, I noticed in the chat, Mike, you interviewed uh, Wendell today, and he said that the total valuation of the company is a billion. So maybe that's right. that out. Um, uh, but yeah, that's one of the things, obviously, I've, I've talked to a couple of people who were laid off. Um, I haven't gotten any uh, numbers. I did see, Bob, your your uh, follow-up where, where they said 79. I did note that, seven, seven, that 158 happens to be exactly twice 79. So uh, maybe there's something in there. Regardless, it's unfortunate for those people, and we're seeing a lot of layoffs for companies being acquired or not being acquired. Um, so, and it's almost always inevitable there's going to be some layoffs with an acquisition. You don't need three right. sets of accountants. You don't need three sets of um, HR people. Um, so, um, it's unfortunate, but it is. Yeah. Business. Yeah. 
no, I, I understand that. And uh, yeah, it's, it's going to happen. Um, and uh, yeah, thanks to Mike Quararo for that uh, clarification, because I've seen it all over the place on that. Um, anything else on reveal where we move on? Uh, well, wh while we're on the, uh, on the, on the topic of, uh, on, of e-discovery, uh, uh, Victor, you've, you've, you've got a story, uh, involving blobs of indecipherable data. And, and America's mayor. So, uh, yeah, there's that. Um, <laughs> yeah, I like to clarify that during the entire time I lived in New York, I never voted for him. So, uh. Then again, you know, I think I think I only had like one opportunity to vote for him. That was like, you know, so. Um, but anyway, uh, yeah. So basically, uh, Rudy Giuliani had an had another interesting week. I feel like they all have it. They like you could say that they've had interesting weeks for like years now. But um, but yeah, he got he got sanctioned for um, providing blobs of indecipherable data and few documents in discovery. And basically, he defaulted on his uh, on on the. Um, on the uh, defamation case that was brought against him by uh, those th those two poll workers in Georgia, and um, and um, he got sanctioned by by the judge in that case. He had uh, uh, his business had to pay more than forty three thousand for discovery violations, and he had previously been ordered to pay an additional eighty nine thousand, uh, so total of one hundred thirty two thousand in sanctions. Um, luckily, because he defaulted, he doesn't get the um, adverse inference. So there's that. So I guess there's a silver lining in all this, but. You know, it's just, it's just, it's just kind of like, you know, I mean, the whole strategy that he seemed to have was just, you know, I'll, I'll concede to uh, their points. I'll, I'll, um, uh, I'll, you know, I'm not going to contest their points, so that therefore we can't go to discovery. Which makes you wonder what's he hiding, uh, or he, or what doesn't he want to get out there that he's willing to take this default judgment, um, you know, from these, from, 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 from these, from these two plaintiffs. Um, but you know, I guess, I guess we'll, <laughs> we're not, we're not going to find out, or, 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 or we will at some point, but. Uh, but yeah, it just it just it just kind of um, one of those things where you know once again with the discovery, it's kind of like with all the mountains and mountains of uh, of electronic evidence out there now. I think it, you know it, it, it probably looks pretty suspicious if if someone just turns over just a little bit of evidence that um, you know <laughs> just like a few documents here and there that that that, that um, you know uh, there's no chance that 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 could cover like anything close to like what um, what is relevant in a certain case. Um, and you know also considering Giuliani's status as a, a uh, what is it? He is he's a, he's a cybersecurity expert who um, who also ran a consulting company for um, you know electronic data and stuff like that. It's also uh, doubly ironic, I guess, in this sense. But yeah, I mean, just it's one of those things where it's just like you know sometimes sometimes you you don't want you don't you you don't want that stuff to get out and you and, and you pay the you pay you, you pay the price. And I guess he's willing to pay the price in this case to you know to prevent that stuff from coming out. You know? I'm convinced a lot of these guys are just going to go the Tom Girardi route and get themselves declared incompetent before, you know, the shit hits the fan. I, I mean, I, just, I don't know. It just seems like they don't, they don't seem to care what's happening. They, at least some of them should understand the legal implications. So I think that I, I wouldn't be surprised if you saw one or two of them pull that, but I could, could be wrong. When, when I saw blobs of indecipherable data from the judge, all I could think about was whether they were somehow trying to uh, do some data collection from uh, his his forehead and his face because I seem to remember some some blobs of indecipherable stuff running running down in in a famous picture. Yeah, of all the stuff that's come out about him in the last year, I have to say this is actually probably the least disturbing thing. 
Um, you know, look, a garden variety e-discovery violation is much better than some of the other stuff that's come out. We'll leave it at that. There's well, a he, I, there's a yeah. uh, there's a tweet yeah. that's going viral. I don't I can't remember exactly what it is, but it's some dad explaining a conversation with his son where he goes like it's a transcript. It's like me. The weird thing is Giuliani really rose to prominence after 9-11. And then the next thing is son born in 2006. Oh, like he was behind that too. And <laughs> me, no. But now I see how you would get there yeah, based on what you know. <laughs> Actually, he rose to prominence prosecuting Gotti, didn't he? Yeah. Well, yeah. well, well, he was Rico. Well, to, to the to law the nerds. Yeah, I mean, yeah. definitely. Well, you know, it's funny because I remember there was an editorial in the New York Times the week before he before 9-11, and they were referring to him as like being like a, an, you know, in this operatic controversy because I think he had announced that he has left his wife on a press on a press yeah. conference. I mean, he had yeah, done before, some before he told really her, yeah. despicable things. Yeah. Well, well no, <laughs> and, that's like, I mean, I mean, I, I think Joe could probably attest to this, but like living in New York at the time, like before 9-11 hit, people were tired of him. Like it was just so much drama, like every day. It was like, kind of like, as I like Trump in a lot of ways, it's like, oh, you know, uh, Rudy Giuliani announced at a press conference he's leaving his wife and doesn't tell her, but didn't tell her beforehand. You know, Rudy Giuliani, is he gonna challenge Hillary Clinton? Is he not gonna challenge Hillary Clinton? Is is he gonna, is he gonna run for governor? Is he gonna, you know, now he has, so it's just, it, 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 I know all these like ethical scandals as well, and like stuff with him and Carrick, and it was just kind of like, you know, until 9-11 came around, like people were like, just get the get 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 the heck out. We're done with you. You know, we don't we don't want to deal with your stuff anymore. And then you became America's man. So which look, I mean, credit to him. I mean, you you play the hand, you you play the cards that you're dealt. You know, he rose to the occasion at that time and and and, and he did he did what he needed to do. But you know, since his career since then has sort of been very, very puzzling for a lot of people who who watched him in action, you know, during during that time period. I do have just just to take it take it back to the e-discovery angle i still I, i'm so i don't know if the judge i haven't read what it, i don't know if this was i guess a, 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 an opinion from the judge but i'm curious as heck as to what blobs of indecipherable data actually were like what was he like giving them spreadsheets with numbers that were not labeled or something or i have no idea what that could even be anyway i haven't gotten through the whole um I, i've got a copy of the order i haven't gone through through it all yet but um you know it's really hard to get terminating sanctions you really you know since uh, the 2015 rules changes you really have to do a, you, you really have to do a lot of things from a discovery standpoint to get to that point so um you know obviously he did that and uh um it's amazing some of the things in the cases we cover that that people or companies do and they're still given maybe a you know maybe an adverse inference at best um and even they're not maybe even a mandatory one but a permissive one so you just never know so it really takes a lot of work to get that terminating sanction yeah well on a related note i mean it's not really a legal tech story but the news this week that the trump trial in georgia is going to be live streamed kind of struck a chord for me because i'm uh, you know, uh, old, old enough to remember that uh, w when live streaming was never, ever a thing for, for trials and uh, court TV. Uh, well, court TV. I'm Everybody's going to become court TV. I'm old enough to remember when court TV started yeah. uh, and uh, way back when. Yeah, um, I watched and, the OJ trial yeah. like when it was. When, yeah. when, when, when it right, was the OJ trial. 
and and I mean, it's it's both it's both it's both disturbing to anticipate the streaming of that. Uh, as my wife said yesterday, I guess you know nobody will be doing anything for the for uh, as long as that takes. Uh, but it's also uh, it's also fascinating to think about uh, the ability uh, of that and how few how how rare it still is for courts to really be openly broadcasting and streaming their their court proceedings. I'm glad the court's doing it in this case, but it's still something that uh, a lot of courts are, are resistant to do. Uh, you know, most most no notably the the uh, SCOTUS, but. Uh, at all levels and uh, I mean state a lot of our state court trials uh, I know in Massachusetts would certainly allow cameras in the courtroom in most cases but uh, the streaming is still something that only happens very rarely and I, th I think it's a uh, kudos to the court for doing it in that case I think yeah um for so this is a preview uh, and a plug then for anyone going to relativity fest you can see me our usual panelist Stephanie Wilkins and occasional panelist panelist Isha Morante are doing a panel on that on cameras in the courtroom so awesome you can yeah. hear more about it there I mean it'll be interesting because I mean I think go ahead sorry go ahead go ahead no no sorry go on all right well I think it's interesting because like you know and we talked about this on the show it's kind of like you know for most for most like I mean I'm sure you know there'll be all kinds of people tuning in and you know they'll probably have to like you know, set up like a bunch of like alternate streams and like increase their capacity and whatnot and server space and all that other nonsense. But like, I think most people are kind of conditioned to kind of think like for that Perry Mason moment or like that big dramatic moment where he could be, oh, we caught you, we caught you. And it's like, but most most trials are just like, you know, very pedantic, very kind of you know, boring to most, I mean, even even to me, like when I'm when I'm watching them on, on the proceedings and stuff. So it's just, so I think I mentioned to see just how long it, it, it kind of captures people's attention because it's not like, you know, at least with OJ, there was the murder. You know, there was there was the there was a, there was a, there was the murder. There was you know all the all the fireworks over over you know the um, you know the the, the 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 Mark Furman tapes and stuff like that and the gloves. But this is going to be like very like esoteric stuff about like voting machines and like you know um, like stuff involving you know like the fake electors and stuff. Mm -hmm. and I, I just wonder. I, <laughs> yeah, I, I wonder. I wonder how much. I wonder how much. Like, yeah, people. Yeah, how 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 it's going to hold people's attentions for that long? But you know, I, I could be wrong. Yeah. I mean, historically, the issue has. I mean, y'all know this, but the issue's been from a criminal defense standpoint. It's uh, and this is a criminal trial. I, correct me if I'm wrong. Like, I may be. It's a criminal. Yeah, this <laughs> thinking about the wrong thing, but okay. No. Um, <laughs> I was just about to look it up to make sure, but you know. The, it's a problem because what it does is it causes everybody to behave differently because the camera's there. I think that <clears throat> that's an issue for two reasons. First of all, just from the constitutional aspect of um, defending a criminal case and protecting the rights of the defendant. Um, much as I hate to talk about protecting the rights of Trump as the defendant, as a criminal defense attorney, you've got to, like you have an obligation to represent this person no matter how they come to you and who they are. Um, that's your job and it really can affect the, the course of the trial. So I think that that's problematic. And then the other part that's problematic is who knows what his antics are going to be less for the purposes of the criminal trial and more just uh, for the purposes of dog whistling at his followers. I mean, you know, it's, I just think there's, it's a weird decision in this particular case to do this. Um, and at this point, I don't think Donald's able to find a lot of very competent criminal defense lawyers. So maybe they don't even care. I don't know, but I, I think it can really, um, hamper a uh, criminal, uh, the defense of somebody when you got the cameras there. 
And will Democratic candidates need equal time? <laughs> right. <laughs> well, Bob Menendez might be getting equal time anyway. Uh, but, you know, it's interesting, uh, the point about protecting the defendant, because I I actually feel like, you know, we talked about the OJ there. I, I always thought that part of what helped OJ was the uh, the fact that everyone wanted to see a confess on the stand like Perry Mason moment. And as it became more and more tedious, people were more like, well, really? Uh, I don't know. Um, and I think that's an issue, not just with the audience at home, but it's because there's kind of a, a, a civics literacy problem with jurors too. The jurors expect it to look like that because we don't see these things on TV ever. And you get a bunch of people in there and they, they like want to see a slam bang kind of show like law and order. And then it's a bunch of incredibly boring nerds talking for four days. And then they think, well, I guess the, I guess they didn't have anything. And if we didn't have the OJ trial, would we have ever had the Kardashians? No. And, uh, yeah. <laughs> God damn it. OJ. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, let's see. Uh, going back to some uh, actual legal tech topics. Um, uh, I mean, that's sort of a legal tech topic because streaming courts and all that. But um, uh, Gene, uh, you were uh, something here. You have a story, not that you wrote this week, but in which you were written about. Yeah, Aisha uh, from AL, from ALMLaw.com wrote a story where she interviewed me and another attorney about um, now, the, the story is about the concentration, the, the power concentration, the duopoly, the famous duopoly, Lexus and Westlaw. And it's interesting because she's sort of focused on the concentration where fast case has been bought and, you know, who knows what their future is. Taste text has been bought by TR and just that there are fewer lower cost alternatives in the marketplace. And what I tried to bring up is there has been you know, I, I actually, and this is, this is probably viewed as somewhat controversial because Ron Friedman, who I have a lot of respect for, told, completely disagreed with me on this. I actually see a, a number of factors contributing to the research platforms, Lexus and Westlaw, going the way of blockbuster video because there's going to be, well, first of all, all of the primary law is already, um, uh, commoditized. And I believe that AI is going to make the secondary law, which young lawyers are interested in, which is practical guidance, that is easily going to become, AI is going to make that a commodity. And treatises, which were one of the things that lawyers, that, that people kept Lexis and West Publishing for, there's where's the generation of lawyers who care about treatises? There's the boomers, and I think the millennials who were trained by the boomers, and after that, I don't know that anyone is going to care about legal treatises 20 years from now. I'm not saying that's a good thing. I'm just saying there is absolutely a decline in reliance on certain kinds of secondary source material uh, that has sort of kept which sort of 
secured the Lexus and Westlaw dominance. And I just think there are a number of things. It's like the perfect storm. There are a number of things brewing. And I'm not saying that Thomson Reuters or LexisNexis are going to go out of business because very smartly, they have diversified. You know, they they are in the software business, they're in the risk business. But I, re, I seriously, seriously wonder um, how much longer they are going to get away with what they have done to, to price their online research the way they priced it. And again, built into it, they have never given up the, the assumption that, that it's not the law firms, it's the clients that are paying for that. Never since, you know, 2008, clients have been saying, no, 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 no. So it's become more and more of overhead. And so firms are paying for those systems entirely. And often they're paying for both of those systems. And um, and plus in general, and this is more true for Thompson, customer services declined. So it's sort of like you're paying white glove prices, but you're being completely disrespected and ignored as a customer. I just, I have to say, I mean, I feel like that, Firms are treated like cash machines. So I guess I have strong feelings about this. So anybody else want to comment? <laughs> well, in terms of the, first of all, I thought what you said um, both just now and in the article was spot on about the white glove prices and not getting white glove treatment. And that's something that's got to break at some point. I mean, it's got to give. But then the other thing that you mentioned about treatises sort of falling out of favor. And um, I, I think in addition to the younger generation not relying on them as much, as someone who wrote a treatise, you know, co-authored a treatise for a decade for Thomson Reuters, let me tell you, they don't pay a lot and it's a lot of work. And I think that people just, they're having a hard, they're really kind of struggling because I've had people reach out to me since wanting to see if I'd write this treatise or that treatise. And um, they're having a hard time finding people willing to write them for these lowball prices that they are offering. So I think that might be another contributing factor to sort of the decline of the legal treatises that we all <clears throat> grew up on and learned how to practice law using. You know, actually, this uh, the other day, Bob actually made a point on this topic. Uh, Bob had said, uh, <laughs> Bob said that conversation. No, well, what? Yeah. You know, Bob made a point on this that uh, like because because uh, Nikki and I were having the same conversation the other day. And Bob kind of said, well, if there is a role where AI could crunch all of this information and spit out a treatise-like answer, that will still be something that needs to be kind of guided by the human treatise, the corpus of, you know, like learned thought that these two companies have right now, because that's what's gonna have to train an AI to look at everything and figure out what is good and bad. But I do, but I do think over the long haul that does start fading away, and over time, AI is going to be able to just like spit out here's the answer, the treatise answer. Never discuss weighty topics after a few glasses of wine at Deltacon, mm -hmm. but uh, we we were talking about this this sort of kind <laughs> yeah. of this very very we were talking topic. About yeah. <laughs> we're talking the exact topic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and part of what we're talking about is is the the vendors out there that have a lot access to a lot of this data, but not that secondary data, and and whether what kind of a, you know what what uh, kind of. Uh, uh, generative AI, you know, what kind of output they can they can uh, put out there using generative AI, and I, I yeah, I'm still of of the opinion that that clearly that that secondary conduct content uh, provides a a major advantage uh, to Thompson Reuters and Lexus Nexus, but I also 
fully agree that that's the way it is right now, but it's probably not all that far off into the future where uh, the AI gets so good that, uh, that that secondary stuff is less important. And certainly to your point about treatises, I mean, I, I, I don't know anybody who, <laughs> when's the last time you looked at a treatise on anything? I don't know, but it's sort of the gone away of the law review. The other value, I think that, I mean, I still think Thomson Reuters and Lexis Nexus have cornered the market on this generative AI. I know not, I mean, I think that it's going to put them in a significant competitive advantage across the board, in part because they may not have all the software that has access to all of the law firm's operating systems and business information, but they each have some of it, in addition to all the case law, in addition to the treatises. And so when you can build those bridges across those different data sets, you can provide invaluable information. And they were already doing this before generative AI. Lexus was, at least. <clears throat> I think Thomson Reuters was as well, but I know Lexus was. And that can provide you with invaluable types of information when you can make your law firm's um, uh, documents, you know, um, have links back to the relevant parties and cases and references within those documents, um, even if you didn't put them in there, you know, turn live, turn them into live links like a web page. So there's lots of interesting potential. And that's also where the companies that house that data, whether it's document management companies or law practice management companies, also are sitting on some gold mines of data that <clears throat> will provide the customer value more is what I'm talking about. Not data they're going to sell in the market, obviously, but the data that customers can then use with generative AI applied on top of it and provide all sorts of insights and valuable information. But I do think Thomson Reuters and Lexus are kind of uniquely positioned to either be the home base for that or provide bridges in to that. Well, let me just mention one more thing. Blex Fastcase is still out there. They are also working with AI and they are still cheap. So that may, companies like that, lower cost companies who can get a hold of AI are going to have a lot more power to disrupt at least the financial basis that Lexus and a lot of the financial assumptions that Lexus and Westlaw have been able to get away with for the past 20 years. And there's gotta be new players coming along. I mean, I think, uh, you know, we've seen this uh, several times uh, over the over the history of the legal tech world is, is where, uh, you know, there, there, there needs to be products that serve all segments of the market. And uh, uh, I, I was wondering the same thing, actually going back to the reveal acquisition of Logical. I mean, Logical was one of the few e-discovery platforms out there that really kind of focuses on the smaller firm end of the market. And, uh, uh, there, there are very few tools available for small firm or some other stuff out there, but but very few. And uh, uh, who knows what, I mean, what Reveal is saying is they're going to keep it, you know, they, they now want to span the market from small firms all the way up to the biggest uh, organizations, but uh, hopefully they do that. But but if not, you know, something else is going to come along to serve that that part of the market in e-discovery and something else is going to come along in, in legal research, I think. Okay, Jason from Bloomberg just chimed in something. What? Oh, Bloomberg, he just yeah, tell us what his point is. <laughs> yeah, but I, you know, it, yeah. Well, there are other. Um, you know, Bloomberg's one of the other. Um, and when I've written about AI in the past, I do talk about how um, you know Bloomberg, in addition to Thomson Reuters and you know a few other companies, own 
a lot of that data that provides the court analytics. You know, it's not just Thompson Reuters or Lexis. There are a few other, um, there's a fourth one that is uh, evading me right now, but that also um, owns a lot of proprietary data and has AI that helps pull um, analytics out of it. Um, I can't remember Bloomberg's who it Clure. is. Trellis? I think it's Trellis. Clure, Bloomberg. Ah, uh, I know it was Bloomberg. I, I might've been yeah, multiple. So. I'm not sure, but anyway, um, the, I, you know, I think that there are other companies that also have the um, ability to do that as well. So it'll be interesting. I think there's going to be a um, bit of a battle out there and we'll see how the, what happens when the dust settles. Yeah. One, one other trend that could, could impact all of this is, is the uh, increasing uh, 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 deployment of, of kind of retrieval augmented generation uh, with, with generative AI tools and you know the examples of what companies like uh, like Net Documents and and others are doing, where essentially a law firm's own knowledge base becomes uh, the body of knowledge against which uh, the AI is is able to uh, provide its uh, answers. Uh, and to, to some extent, uh, you know, if you're a large enough firm with a big enough uh, of a knowledge base, then all of those briefs and memos and everything else. That have been created within your firm kind of become that secondary content in a sense and, and help uh, help the AI create uh, create new content out of that. And also become the practical guidance tools. I mean, that's that's yeah. what KM is all about. That's kind of what I'm saying. Yeah. 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 Uh, all right. Um, uh, <laughs> no transitions here. Uh, Nikki, what did you have? AI, oh, it's oh, AI. Okay. So AI. More AI, okay, of course, okay. <laughs> we can talk about more AI then. Go ahead. Um, well, so there was an article that caught my eye. The title in particular was intriguing, but the case itself did not go quite as far as the article suggested. Um, <laughs> see if I have this, okay. Um, the link but now. it nevertheless was, um, it, it's an <clears throat> interesting proposition. Um, okay, you got there twice. <laughs> um, and the article suggested that this California case, that the title had been, that had been handed down, um, uh, basically stood for the idea that um, AI vendors are liable for biased job screening. That's actually not, um, it, it was more of an extrapolation of the holding uh, from that case, but it was still really interesting because essentially um, what the holding of the case was, uh, was that the California Fair Employment and Housing Act permits a business entity acting as an agent of an employer to be held directly liable as the just as the employer is for employment discrimination and violation of um, the Fair Housing Act uh, in the appropriate circumstances, which has a lot to do with like the size of the business and the number of employees in order for it to fall under that provision of the um, uh, act. But <clears throat> it was interesting because um, the, the thesis of the article essentially was that this ruling has implications for the AI industry, which is true because a lot of um, organizations, both the companies themselves and also their vendors, you know, that they contract out to to screen um, uh, applicants, job applicants, they use algorithms to target um, and screen applicants and perform other types of determinations through that process of hiring somebody, um, and you know, one thing that 
I've talked about and we've all talked about on this show a lot is the inherent bias built into AI, especially when it comes to people of color and women, um, uh, and that <clears throat> these tools, generative AI is equally guilty, if that's the appropriate word of this as well, um, that these tools really do um, in multiple ways act to the in, uh, make determinations and provide data that is detrimental to people of color and women um, because of all these built-in biases. And obviously in the context of job uh, hiring, you can see how that can be problematic. And in this particular case, it was someone who had applied for a job and there was, had, it was like a health screening after the job acceptance that went into like her personal reproductive health, which seems really strange. <laughs> um, and I think that maybe partly she refused to provide this information and that's partly what triggered her to seek out, I assume, the services of an attorney. Um, but I just thought it was interesting because one of the things we're all gonna be grappling with, um, well, you know, the legislatures and us as a, a culture are, um, how to regulate AI, the impact of AI on our culture, especially because it's um, advancing so quickly. So it'll be interesting just to see how these types of things kind of play out um, as AI becomes subject to these types of holdings, or are they going to issue different holdings and treat the AI differently? I don't know. It's, it's hard to tell. So I thought it was an interesting case. Yeah, that is interesting. Um, didn't uh, didn't New York City's uh, didn't they pass a law that um, uh, employment screening uh, uh, algorithms have to go through a bias audit? Didn't that? I, I think I remember that coming into effect. So I think that's the only one I've seen. But to me, that's uh, I wouldn't be surprised to see more of those, uh, especially if cases like this come up, because that certainly um, seems like uh, like you know, we see so many biases in, in algorithms out there for everything from uh, from employment to um, obviously facial recognition's been accused of having biases. Um, you had the compass system for sentencing, um, you know, that was shown to have some biases. So absolutely, I, I think we've got a lot to go, a long way to go in regard to that and some uh, controls to put in place. So I'm hoping this helps push us a little further down that path. So uh, last year, so for people who haven't followed me enough to know that in, in addition to all of my jobs at Above the Law, I also am the debate coach at Army. Uh, and so my cadets last year, the topic had to deal with AI. And this was actually an issue that we did a lot of research on. There's some fascinating uh, legal scholarship in law reviews, law professors stuff, all that secondary stuff that people aren't reading but should. Uh, there's some really interesting scholarship out there about how the, the only way we can really address these issues over the long haul is we're going to have to sit down and say, there's, this needs to be a mandatory licensing scheme in the way in which, you know, driver's insurance, like driver's insurance and stuff is. Uh, the only way that you can do it, because right now the liability swings back to the people writing the original algorithm. And sometimes that's deterring people from trying to innovate because they don't want to be on the hook for something that isn't their fault because the algorithm didn't discriminate. Somebody pumped it full of garbage data and the garbage data that they put into it is what went wrong. And there, there's some professor, law professors who've looked at this and said, this is, what, this is a perfect condition for insurance pools and distributing risk that way. Mandatory insurance and saying, 
you know, the, the person licensing it who wants to shove it with a bunch of property value data uh, has to pay a lot more because that's probably going to introduce bias to it that the original programmer didn't. The original programmer pays less of a uh, less of a, a rate to uh, blanking on the word. How am I doing? Premium. Less of a premium for their coverage because they just put it out and more for the people who put it. it really interesting stuff. And they we had some good evidence about how insurance companies are prepared to make that kind of actuarial decision-making and probably would smooth the path for better innovation long-term if you did that. Well, we're running short on time, so I think it's only uh, logical to ask Joe to reveal the story he was going to talk about this week. <laughs> <laughs> decided to start making uh making little placards for how good your transitions are there um what's what's so, the most i can score a uh, 10 10.0 like like gymnastics but am i oh, in the mirror like seven. Yeah, right, yeah. Oh, yeah, okay. that, that, that's pretty hard that's that pretty harsh joe like like what are you the east german judge or something come on uh, yeah i was gonna say yeah all right so <laughs> I, I, I have a 10.0 printed out too. I was ready for one of those. And then it just didn't happen this episode the whole time. I was like, uh, all right, anyway. Uh, yes. So uh, my my only issue uh, this week was I had a an article that I put out because uh, Caroline and I, who sometimes is on this show, theoretically is a panelist, uh, Caroline and I actually had a joint meeting with Zero, and we were chatting about all sorts of stuff that Zero is up to. We didn't really have an agenda, uh, and they do lots of things, but the conversation kind of naturally went down the road of uh, guideline, these guidelines that in-house counsel have started dropping on outside counsel over the last few years. It's the bane of outside counsel existence because in-house, uh, these clients start writing up these arcane Bibles for how to bill them that say, you know, never use the word telephone, only use the word teleconference, so like stuff like that stupid things. And then they use this as ways to drag out the billing process and reject bills because they, oh, they, you didn't put, you didn't put everything in 0 0.05 increments, which we require, yada, yada, yada. Um, and it's really kind of killing productivity. I mean, the in-house people think that it's really helping out because they think that uh, they're getting one over. Uh, but in the end of the day, all that happens is people raise their rates to cover the overhead of having to pay staff people to deal with all this garbage. Uh, it, and what Zero has that I thought was really interesting was they're working on stuff that can look at not only an AI answer to look at what the guidelines are and navigate those and look at what the bills, the, the pre-billing comes in and score it against the actual guidelines, but they can go back into the past history, past bills that have been paid versus haven't been paid versus have been sent back versus how bad that was. Because some of the, and there, and what Alex was telling us, uh, CEO of Zero was telling us was that they did that because they started finding that some of, not surprisingly, some of these arcane rules never get enforced. They're just there so that the, the client could enforce them the month that they want to drag out the billing cycle a little bit longer. And so 
it will look at these things and determine these are things that they are known to care about. These are things that they aren't known to care about. So we're going to put a higher priority on that. We're going to try to get it all right, but you know, we'll put a higher priority here. Oh, these, these situations, sometimes they're vague rules that just say do X and they make complaints here and there that, oh, well, this isn't what X means. It looks back through your history of billing and goes, no, actually back in September of 2018, you thought that this is what that meant. Uh, and it will use that data to correct, even offer suggestions of the correction for the description that should be should be offered by the lawyer for that amount of time that would then comply. And it offers it to a human and says, this violates these rules. We think this language would satisfy them. And even on that, he said that it's using the past individual lawyer's version of their diary entry and tries to make it sound like that person directly and uses the style that they've used in the past. I thought it was really fascinating. Oh, way to get around. And it's a use of AI that's not going to land you in, you know, sanctions. Like, I don't know, some people we've talked about on this show this year. Can it hallucinate extra hours? I know, right? Like, you know, it, all it's doing is taking the hours are fixed by the humans. It's looking at the hours and it's just like, oh, yeah. you didn't describe what you did in a way that they will accept this. However, we know what you did. We're looking at all this. We're looking at what they've accepted in the past. You, sh We suggest you rewrite it this way. And a human in billing can either say yes or no, or then elevate it to the partner if they need to. But yeah, I thought it was... That's a good use of AI. Yeah, in the it, comments, but yeah, it is. And then, I mean, it's being—it's also already happening on the on the other side of that equation, right? I mean, the in-house yeah clients who are in-house legal departments are already using AI to review these uh, incoming invoices for compliance with their billing guidelines, and they're and and uh, you know, if, if you can uh, cut off any problems before you even send it out, then uh, you're going to get paid faster and uh, have less fewer fewer issues I guess. um any other comments on that all right um we uh doug we got a couple of minutes i i know i know you you've just kind of launched a, a a series of posts you were you were telling me about earlier uh that uh raises some interesting issues uh and and uh I know you've just kind of gotten started with it, but maybe you can give us a kind of a preview of that and have you back a little bit later to talk more as you as you develop this this thread. But sure, um, yeah. So I've um, uh, I've had some people reach out to me over the past couple of years about the whole hyperlinked files as treated as attachments issue in discovery, and um, there was a case a couple of years ago, Nichols v. Noom. Uh, they had an ESI protocol where they didn't explicitly say that they should be treated as attachments. So Judge Parker said um, they shouldn't be. Um, then we had a case earlier this year, StubHub case, where they specifically, the, the plaintiffs apparently negotiated a much better protocol for them where they were said they needed to be treated as uh, attachments. Um, and so, again, the judge ruled uh, according to that. Then we had a case a couple of months ago, which was the first one where they were still negotiating the ESI protocol and battling on it. So it's the first instance where the ESI protocol didn't factor into the ruling. 
and uh, that was the InMeta Pixel healthcare uh, case. Um, and uh, it was a short ruling because the judge was just ruling on a couple of issues and just made a ruling. But she said they shouldn't be treated as modern attachments, uh, but the plaintiff should have the ability to request files on a case-by-case -case basis, but not as a matter of course. So I kind of started thinking I'd like to start a series writing about that. And so I wrote about the case law, the three cases. I also did a search on eDiscovery Assistant and found one case that actually mentioned the phrase modern attachments, which was um, a case where it was just the ESI protocol order. And they actually, the party agreed, it was the NRA uh, acetaminophen um, litigation where they agreed to treat them as modern attachments um, in the protocol, which um, now, of course, you know, they've, they've taken on that headache. So it's a good thing they have a lot of acetaminophen because uh, they might need it. Um, but uh, uh, I decided to put that discussion of, you know, whether they should or shouldn't be out on uh, LinkedIn and uh, got a ton of people weighing in and it's really about close to 50-50 people who say they should be or shouldn't be treated as modern attachments. But what I found with this initial set of arguments is that some people are straying off topic a little bit because you know I had people say, well, if I have a link to a, a, a Wikipedia page, that shouldn't be produced. And of course not, it shouldn't be produced. We're not talking about that. So I'm going to have a series of posts that kind of get into the different issues. I think the next one is going to be an attempt to try to kind of put together some assumptions about what we're talking about, try to hopefully get everybody on the same page. In subsequent posts, I'm looking to do like some, some pros for making treating them as modern attachments and then some cons, including some of the technical challenges, and then hopefully even look at some of the different technology solutions out there both from the uh, from the source app, source solution standpoint, like M365 and, and Google Drive, uh, as well as products out there that are supposed to help facilitate retrieving those links. Um, so I'm looking. I'm not really sure where it's going to go, uh, but I've got obviously a lot of interest and a lot of people who have strong opinions one way or the other. So I'm just going to kind of continue to hit different angles on the uh, the topic and and just see where it goes. Very interesting. Good. Um, all right. Well, uh, we've got a couple of minutes. Any, any good of the order or shall we uh, start our Labor Day weekend now? Joe, did you have something you're going to say? You look like no, I was just going to remind people to sign up for skills. <laughs> I'm waiting for Joe to offer yeah. like another use of one of the e-discovery company's names. I feel like yeah. you didn't do that as much as you promised. I was waiting for lots of like I, no, no, I, I, I got, I got in, I got in a rel. I mean, I got yeah. reveal and I got I pro with the IP joke and logical. slash serious slash serious comment. And I got the logical and I got everyone in that deal. Oh, uh, I thought you were going to like pepper in some other ones. I was excited well, to see what K, you did. I can't uh, do that kind of thing. Uh, it doesn't work for me. All right. K. <laughs> Okay, one of the things I was going to say. Oh, oh, I didn't. Oh, 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 I got the There's last one. There's a 10. There's a 10. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Yeah. And just to follow up with Gene just said, always posted in his in the chat here, but he's got a, a conference coming up. It's not until January, the conference, I think, uh, uh, if I have the date right, but the uh, registration closes for it uh, pretty soon. Uh, I, I, I've heard it's a great conference. I haven't been to it. Have you been to it, Gene? It's a great conference. Yeah, I've been going for years. It's yeah. now mostly virtual, but it's terrific. Yeah, good. 
and uh, I know he's, I think always is also a speaker at uh, so many conferences in October, but one, one of the ones is KM and Innovation that uh, Patrick DiDomenico and Joshua Fireman are putting on in New York. Uh, I, I am a media sponsor of it for whatever that means. Uh, and I'm going to be there live on site recording a bunch of podcasts. So that would be a good one. Uh, all right. Well, everybody have a great uh, Labor Day weekend. And uh, we will uh, see you back next week. And uh, I hope everybody, thanks for that link to the skills conference in the chat. Uh, and I hope to see uh, everybody here on September 15th for a big gala 100th episode celebration. Uh, not sure exactly what we're going to do that day, but we're going to do something. All right. See you all then. Have a good weekend. Bye, everybody. Well, stay safe.